Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob at Sex, Love, and Addiction, and uh, as always, please be reminded that Seeking Integrity, our treatment program, allows us to do this. I am really, I don't know what the word is, like usually I'm excited about guests, but I think today I feel moved by these gentlemen. The one show that we've really never done is having a conversation with addicts themselves, and I hope at some point we'll also talk to spouses, but I have invited uh, two gentlemen that I have had the opportunity to work with. Both Jay and Larry have been through our treatment program. They volunteered that they, because they wanted to speak to this issue. I'm not using their real names, so um, they are completely confidential, although we would maybe use their names anyway because they have volunteered. But in this case, I want to keep them really unknown to you. And we're just going to have a conversation. I really want those of you listening to understand what it means to have these kinds of issues and how it affects their lives. And I think what I'm going to do in our conversation, I'm going to ask uh, Jay to talk first, and then Larry to talk, and after a while, we'll kind of get our rhythm. Let me just start with this, Jay. Why did you come to treatment? Well, Dr. Rob, um, I had a long history of cheating and getting caught, and I always was able to talk my way out of that and just move on to the next thing. But it got to the point where it was uh, so devastating to my wife and to me and my family that I needed to do more than just try to rely on myself as a way to fix this thing. And I needed help. Well, let me back up for a second and say, you sounds like you're married and I got that, but how long have you been married? And obviously you said you've been caught a number of times. So why was this time different that you finally ended up saying, okay, you know, I need to get some help for that. I've been married for over 45 years. And uh, like I said, there have been multiple occasions many times with uh, a space of time in between them. But this thing always came back, regardless of how much I try to white knuckle it. And I tried to do this on my own. I even tried to do it, you know, by attending uh, a meeting a week, but, you know, after I figured out kind of what it was. But it wasn't until I got therapy in a group setting and then took advantage of some of the resources that were available that I was able to get through my shame and denial rather than try to talk myself out, you know, talk my way out of the situation. 
did you want to come to treatment or to, to go to residential or did you kind of had as most of the gentlemen I work with kind of a dilemma, which is I lose my marriage or I go to treatment? The answer to that is yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, my marriage was on the brink. Uh, you know, I have to tell you that. Uh, but at the same time, I was frustrated that I couldn't fix this on my own. I couldn't fix this in my head by myself and I couldn't do it my way. So, Jay, you know, people decide they want to come to treatment or residential treatment for various reasons, and some of them are volunteering. Most of them are what I would call invited guests, which means that they realize that if they didn't do something, they were going to lose their relationship. And here you are in a 45-year relationship. I, I think you have kids or even grandkids. W what led you to say, okay, I'm going to put my life down and go get some kind of help? Uh, it's really two things, Dr. Rob. Uh, the first one was that... Uh, trying to do this on my own, just going to a weekly meeting uh, wasn't enough and it wasn't working. Uh, I was in a state of denial. And the second one was I was uh, at the end of my marriage if I hadn't, if I didn't do something. And uh, so there was definitely a demand there, you know, to be honest and to go forward and, uh, and fix this thing once and for all, figure out what it was. And Larry, what, um, what were you struggling with? Um, my main issue was porn. I, uh, you know, found it when I was a young teenager and it became my escape. It became an obsession. I was just so, uh, in love with it for <laughs> my young adult life and, and into my adult life. And what do you mean in love with it? I mean, it was my comfort. It was my companion. It was my escape. Just always so reliable and exciting and safe, honestly, having gone through treatment and done a therapy, I, you know, I realized in hindsight, a lot of things that I didn't understand back then, but you know, I was, I was so afraid to connect with people. And this doesn't mean that I didn't have girlfriends or wasn't, you know, sexually active with people when I was younger as well. That was also very present, but there was just something so safe about not being vulnerable and, and having this place to escape to, um, in this medium. Well, I guess, you know, I want to ask you about what got you there, but I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. And what's wrong with porn? I mean, a lot of men look at porn. A lot of women yeah. look at porn. People enjoy it. It's a part of their marriages or something they mm -hmm. do for a distraction. Well, what's the big deal? Exactly. And that's the, that, that's what you described is, is my marriage. I've been married for 18 years. And, you know, when my wife and I got together, it was a part of our relationship. And it wasn't a weird thing. And it wasn't a bad thing. And it wasn't even a hidden thing. It's something we engaged in together. And it was exciting. And it was fun. And over time, what started to happen is that it started to really distort my expectations for what I wanted my real life uh, encounters and activities to look like. And, um, you know, it became more and more apparent to my wife that I was far more concerned with how um, even sex between us looked instead of how it felt. And that was the most important thing for me. What do you mean how it looked? You mean how she looked or? No, no. How the situation looked, how it made me look. Um, you know, there'd even be situations where she would ask me, you know, what do you want? And, um, you know, my, my answer to that would never be based on, you know, what would feel good. Um, but it would always come back to trying to reenact something, um, that I had seen in some video or, or some situation, uh, all of my wants and desires were, were based on this distortion of the intensity of, you know, and novelty of porn. 
Yeah, it's certainly both exciting and brings things to you you had not anticipated might interest you for sure. But what, yeah. and so what brought you to the intensity? And and I don't, you know, I don't necessarily mean to talk about residential treatment or seeking integrity, but you know, I can also just talk about treatment in general and getting help. Like, what motivated you to say, uh, "I got to deal with this"? Yeah, my wife and I we decided to go to couples counseling about it because we were having issues, and it came to the point where I was having. Um, troubles with erectile dysfunction. And it was just nothing was ever enough between us. And so we started to go to counseling about it. And we saw a therapist and she kind of brought up the fact that that porn might be playing a negative um, role in our relationship. And then in my relationship with sex, and I said, Ooh, that's, that's, that's bad. And I'm going to have to start, uh, you know, trying to stay away from this. And, you know, at that time, I thought this is no big deal. Did she also kind of demand that of you? Like you need to go no. to help or? No, no, this was, uh, this was 10 years ago, you mm-hmm. know, that we came to this point and it uh, was just this thing where I thought, okay, well, I got to let go of this to have a better relationship and, and fix these issues. Cause it's not like I was wildly fulfilled uh, in our marriage and our sex life as well. You know, I, something was missing for me and I just had no idea what it was. So of course I think it's her and what she's doing and how she treats me and, whether or not she's affectionate or eager or any of those things that we put on our poor wives. Well, that's interesting because what you're talking about, and I think this is true for everyone I work with, is it's never their problem. It's their spouse's problem. It's exactly. their work problem. It's their money problem. It's you know the outside thing that is driving them to this as opposed to they're taking responsibility for it. And I guess when you put it that way, then you don't ever have to deal with it because it's always mm-hmm. something outside of you. Yep. But 10 years is, how did you get from there to checking into a treatment center or our treatment center? I just uh, tried to stay away from it. And when I would inevitably come back to it, I would keep it hidden. And then I would feel guilty and I would tell her about it. And, uh, you know, it just became this, this really sick cycle of doing really good for a long period of time, sometimes even years. And then eventually inevitably coming back to it and then, you know, breaking down and uh, pulling the rug out from under her emotionally again, you know, sometimes, um, I would disclose it right away. And there are other times when, um, you know, I would engage in it for, you know, 1.18 months before it finally came out. And, uh, at that point, you know, the last time she, had uh, gotten on the, the Seeking Integrity website before and, and realized that you guys offered consultations. And so we decided to have the, the consultation with you. Always a bad idea if you don't well, if you don't want to get well. Having a consultation with you is never a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I, I can say confidently at this point it was a very good idea. But at the time, it felt like uh, a huge overcorrection. This, this is not what I need. And uh, this, this is just this is too extreme. You, you said something earlier that, um, and then Jay, I want to follow up with you. You said something like this was never enough or, or mm-hmm. when we were together. And you know, my first thought is like, oh, he means sex. Like this is never enough. But I, I know you well enough to, I don't think that's mm-hmm. quite what you were talking about in terms of your marriage. So what did you mean by this was never enough? That's a really good insight because um, nothing, nothing was ever enough. Never enough money, never enough success, never enough praise never enough respect of my peers, never enough love from, you know, the people that I work with, you know, never enough adoration. So validation hunting. Yes. Yes. And a black hole of need. 
Jay, why is this an addiction? Again, I'm going to go back to that. Like, well, first of all, I guess what I want to say to you, Jay, is, you know, there's a difference between the two of you. I mean, a 45 year marriage is, is huge. You know, some people say an accomplishment. Some people would say, you know, that's amazing. Uh, All kinds of ways of, you know, and I often hear, oh, they're the perfect couple. Look how long they've been together, at least on the outside. How could you get from zero to treatment and takes how could you take 45 years to to decide you needed help yeah i mean i never realized that you know what i was doing uh was part of an addiction i thought i was just a guy i thought this is what guys do you know and what i've learned is that it was really like larry said it, it was an escape uh even the ritualization around the addiction itself well, you're going you're gonna to have to explain that, um, you know, in terms of ritualization, because that can mean many kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, when I would be feeling uncomfortable emotionally, I would look for uh, an escape, something that I felt I deserved, something that I felt entitled to uh, because I worked hard or because, I did, you know, no one would know. And, you know, as far as the ritualization would, would go, it would be... It might involve in alcohol. You know, it made me uh, mm-hmm. more comfortable. It made me more interesting. And it gave me courage mm-hmm. to participate in activities that I normally wouldn't and to put myself in situations that were unhealthy. And uh, it, and when one thing would lead to another and it would be, you know, before I knew it, I had uh, participated in, you know, a sexual act with uh, a stranger and, you know, sometimes that would continue uh, into a relationship, and sometimes it would just be a one-night type of thing. You actually didn't, you know, I had asked uh, Larry about that. And, Jay, you know, what were you doing? I mean, Larry talked about porn, and I assume that means that he wasn't having contact, you know, physically with other people. He was just probably disappearing into isolation in the dark with his computer. But it was different for you? It was. I mean, I'm not, not going to say that I, you know, there were times when I'd be traveling where I wouldn't watch porn, but porn wasn't my primary thing. I mean, I was a cheater. Uh, I looked for opportunities to relieve my tension, you know, through other people. Uh, I would objectify women and take advantage of people who uh, would participate with me. And it was just sex is what I would tell myself. And it was, you know, what people didn't know wouldn't hurt them. All those lies that I would say to myself uh, to justify my activity. Did that affect how you felt about yourself? Absolutely. It just it added ongoing anxiety that I had inside of me and forced all of my emotions into a box that I felt like I would have to protect uh, secrets. And it led to narcissistic behavior as a uh, defense mechanism because if I wasn't in control of the situation, uh, I was vulnerable, and I couldn't be vulnerable. Jay, you know, a lot of people would say uh, that word addiction. I mean, come on, man. So you had a lot of sex, or maybe it was a lot of control, or maybe you drank too much and ended up in a strip club or something. But that word addiction, I mean, and certainly a lot of therapists are like, well, that couldn't exist. Now, we are getting diagnoses, and people are beginning to recognize it. But in general, we get alcoholism, we get drug addiction, we get gambling, but sex? Did you? How did you come to believe that or think about it that way? Well, um, like Larry said, my wife and I did some couples counseling. And we went to a couples counselor who 
uh, was trying to help us through this. And, you know, she wanted me to tell the truth uh, about my past behaviors, and I couldn't do it. And I, you know, I had an individual session with her, and I said, gee, you know what, I think that this is an addiction. And that particular uh, counselor, that particular therapist, didn't believe in sex addiction. And, you know, so I was sort of really, you know, what I thought was maybe a reason for this behavior, she felt was just that I was just a, a liar. A horny guy. Guy, yeah, who, you know, wh- you know, who couldn't control himself in a situation uh, where he should have been able to. It's interesting because you, you you're defining addiction. Right. <laughs> Can't control myself in a situation that I ought to be able to. I'm seeking help for it. It's a problem. It's affecting my relationships. I mean, that pretty much defines addiction. But why didn't you stay with that person and buy into what she was saying? Because we weren't getting anywhere. And it wasn't, and I'd, I'd lie to her. <laughs> no people lie to their therapist that's shocking to me <laughs> and uh you know it wasn't until i got got to a point where somebody really took me aside and called me out on what was really going on and that therapist did acknowledge uh that there was a an addiction uh issue but that person wasn't a csat which i think is an important distinction so they weren't certified in the treatment of sex. They weren't a specialist. Is what That's you're correct. And they, they were a generalist and felt that they could handle any addiction and find a way to uh, address it. And they gave me way too much leeway and too much credit for the work that I was trying to do. And what I really needed was, you know, in our first meeting, Dr. Rob, you asked me about my addiction and I went all the way through this, my story. And at the end, you said, you know, you almost got me. You almost had me. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> it, means that, it means that I was doing everything I could to justify my behavior without taking responsibility and accountability for it. And that was really a breakthrough when I was, when I was finally able to look at my behavior objectively and not be uh, you know, just full of shame about it. Uh, to be able to talk about it in a place that was safe uh, with other people who shared similar experiences so that, you know, it took the fear out of it. And uh, because the, the shame led to fear and, you know, fear of consequences. And it was actually, it was actually much worse living with this day in and day out than the consequences themselves. And the, and quite honestly, the lying that I did along the way through, uh, staggered disclosures created way more harm than the acts themselves. You know, it's interesting. I'm going to ask you what that means by staggered disclosures, but you know, why in the world, Larry, why I have to go back to you. Why in the world you said you told your wife and would eventually tell your wife and you'd finally tell your wife and why in the world would you tell your wife that you were obsessing on porn and emotionally unavailable and trying to stop and couldn't stop. And it seems like something I would just kind of not casually mention over dinner. What motivated you want to tell her? Because, you know, when I'm talking to Jay, it's really clear that he didn't. Well, I mean, it certainly wasn't uh, that concise uh, when it did come up. And it wasn't something that I that I told her that I'm, I'm struggling with it and I want to want to see things differently. It was more her recognizing that, oh, he's trying to, like, reenact something that he's seen. This isn't coming from what he uh. actually wants. And it was coming through you know, difficult, panicked, you know, challenging sexual encounters. And 
my just general anxiety and, and fear around actual sex, uh, which has always been present in hindsight and something that I would never have admitted because, you know, what would that say about me? You know, I need to show up and perform. Right. What guy admits that they have a sex problem, right? Right, right, exactly. So I would just overcompensate everywhere. And this isn't even just in my sex life. I would overcompensate, um, you know, with my image and hide my insecurity with um, making sure that I look my best and people are impressed by me and they like me and they want me around or they desire me in the case of, of my wife or in the case of any woman I would come in contact with, that would be my preference. And, um, you know, like I said before, it's just never enough. So back to your question about uh, how it came up and uh, it was just something that she recognized. And, you know, I've never been opposed to doing better and being better. Uh, I got sober uh, from drinking 12 years ago. And that's something that I've stuck with ever since. And um, that's been a really important thing in my life. And my health is the same way. I'm very healthy. I'm very active. I take care of myself. I eat well. I've always really been interested in in wellness and doing better. And so, you know, when faced with this new thing of like, ah, shit, this other thing that I love, you know, is causing problems and I got to let go of this too. You know, I was definitely resistant, but at the same time, you know, like Jay just said, I knew that it was not healthy. I knew that it made me feel terrible about myself, whether it was actually engaging in it or just through comparison. But you just said I loved it. That's the challenge, isn't it? You know, there's there's comfort and there's familiarity and there's escape and there's intensity. But simultaneously, there's shame and there's self-loathing and there's insecurity and there's deepened feelings of inadequacy. I mean, it, it all just you don't you don't get to pick and choose what you get from it. Right. Do you look at the addiction as having been a reflection of how often you were looking or how what you were looking at or, you know, was it days at a time? Was it hours and hours? Was it? You know, how, how I understand that, that you define it as addiction in terms of the secrecy and the constant need for validation and disappearing into it as a means of making yourself feel better. And, you know, I, I, I think that that's apparent to most people who are studying and understanding addiction. But, you know, how much? You know, honestly, that was one of the big things that, that kept me from taking this seriously for a long time because it was never to the point yet that, uh, you know, I was injuring myself or I was losing hours and hours on it or, uh, you know, engaging in uh, content that was, I don't know, I can see the escalation Disturbing. of it in hindsight. It, that's great. That's perfect. Yeah, it was. There were definitely things that I wouldn't be proud uh, for people to know about. But at the same time, I always justified it because it wasn't extreme, because it wasn't, you know, what I considered to be degrading or, you know, any of the other negatives that you could put on porn frequency at times daily uh, and other times long stretches of time between weeks months years even well that that seems odd i mean how can you call something an addiction if you stop for a long period of time i mean what uh, do, can you attribute that some people say you know i had a baby and i wanted to be involved with my kid or you know uh, wh how can you say you're an addict if you go long periods of time without doing it yeah, that really doesn't matter to me that much. Whether it's an addiction, whether I'm an addict, I know that I like myself better without it. And if I have to do these things to 
stay to be able to stay away from it, then, you know, I'm willing to do it. And uh, whatever label gets put on it, it just makes it easier to talk about. Is it a religious thing? Um, no, you know, no, there's no um, religious shame there. I, I have some pretty deep sexual shame from childhood. I grew up with very little uh, direction and communication around that kind of stuff other than, you know, what I was taught in the, the church that our, that my parents raised us in. And, um, you know, so being a, a young boy and kind of being left to figure things out on his own with his friends and, um, you know, before the, the internet and, you know, all I was really taught about sex was that you shouldn't do it. And, that, uh, <laughs> well, you blew that one out of the water. Yeah, especially when I had my my parents, you know, they had a very active sex life and, uh, you know, had six children. And, you know, the, it was like an ongoing joke in our home growing up that everyone had walked in on mom and dad in the middle of the day at some point and ha ha ha. And, mm -hmm. um, and yet, you know, the messaging around it was uh, this isn't for you and this isn't good. And so I definitely had a lot of shame around that, a lot of secrecy around my sexuality. You know, it's interesting that you say that, Larry, because it's very typical for people with compulsive sexual behavior to have grown up in an environment where there's a lot of sex going on, but nobody talks about it. Yeah. You know, it's like a complete mystery or, or it's shameful. And yet it's, it's uh, there's something underground. There's some dads having an affair or you're witnessing sex or you walk in and there's all this stuff. You're consistent sort of feeling around sex mm -hmm. and yet it's shameful or nobody talks about it. And I think that I didn't ask you to make that point, but I think it's definitely one to for people to think about. Um, the other is, you know, no one ever talks about it and it's a bad thing. And, you know, you know, it's like a secret that people have sex and yet you're exploring your own sexuality and there's something wrong with you for even thinking about it. But I wanted, you know, you really bring up the issue of abuse. And, you know, I know from my work of, what, 30 years in this, that every client I've ever had has various forms of abuse, um, not usually sexual abuse, but much more often neglect or physical abuse or, or the kinds of sexual things that were going on in their home. But I did want to go back to you, Jay, and just sort of say, like, did you have to look at abuse going back to the past? Or, you know, nobody really wants to look at their childhood and say, well, it's mom's fault. You know, that's sort of way too much therapy like but how were you able to come to terms with or how do you see that this came about for you i don't know that i call it abuse as much as a lack of affection and lack neglect yeah neglect you know i too was the oldest in my family sex was not anything that was ever you know openly discussed uh it was never affection wasn't something that was on the table often uh, you know, I can remember when I turned 12 years old, my parents gave me a book that was called Dr. Spock Talks to 12-Year-Olds. 12 12-Year-Olds. 12 <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's how I was introduced to, to sexuality. And, um, you know, there was never any discussion around, around it at all. There was also uh, an environment where it was a crazy household with a lot of people. My paternal grandparents lived with us. And it was very much crime and punishment. There was no attunement if you kind of stepped out of line or, or did the wrong thing. You know, there was never an explanation as to why you were being punished. You were just punished and, you know, locked away and sometimes forgotten about. And, uh, and that didn't feel good. And uh, it, it created a need to escape and a need to uh, rebel. So 
if you call it neglect, I guess that's the best way to, to uh, define it. Well, just to, to the folks who are listening, you know that I've heard people say, I, I wish I'd been hit because at least then I could point to that and say, well, that's what happened to me. But neglect is the absence of something. And so if it's not happening, you don't know what you're missing. And when you're talking about affection and consistency and understanding what's going on around you, you know, without that, how do you figure out life? How do you figure out where you fit in or, or, or even who you are? I like the part about rebel, by the way, mm-hmm. because, you know, when you talk about hiding and acting out throughout your marriage, you rebelled against your relationship. Uh, yeah, I would rebel against having, you know, being responsible, being uh, held accountable, having pressure on me. None of that seemed fair in my mind. And that was my justification. And uh, it's amazing some of the things that you convince yourself about uh, to justify how you're how you're behaving, uh, even though you know it's wrong and you know that it's going to eventually come back and, you know, bite you in the tuchus. So how many people were we talking about? I mean, we're we talking about, so you had a few affairs or maybe you went to some strip clubs or what, what are we really talking about? Yeah, certainly strip clubs, you know, numerous affairs, uh, probably, you know, 20, 30 people over the course of time. What about sex workers? Were you paying for it or massages or any of that kind of stuff? Had some experience with that, but it wasn't a part of a normal routine, if you will, in my addiction. Well, first of all, do any of these relationships, you said they went on for a long period of time. How do you differentiate that from having an affair or do you have like multiple situations like that? Or what, what, what was the nature of those relationships? Did you love them? Did you care about them? I mean, yeah, what about that part? I mean, they were, they were situations where uh, it would start as you know, just a fling, and it would develop into uh, more than that. And they might have lasted a year, year and a half, uh, opportunistically. And it was like it was like leading a double life. You know, you'd be accountable to, you know, or be available somehow to uh, multiple people at the same time, trying to stay in touch. And they weren't. Even, it wasn't even real. Yeah, at least in my mind, it wasn't real. It was just I was taking advantage of the situation. They always use people. I know a lot of guys will say that they would say, I love you or I care about you or you're important to me in order to kind of keep that person in their, in their, you know, deck of cards, so to speak. How did you keep these women on the hook? I would try to avoid saying that, but I might say something like, I'm in like with you, you know, something silly like that, you know, just to, mm-hmm. just to keep them interested. And, you know, these were all consensual situations, you know, easy to justify. It was based on availability and, you know, when I was in town. And, and a lot of it had to do with travel as well. You know, that uh, mm-hmm. traveling was a, was a real big trigger for me, uh, that, you know, the loneliness associated with traveling alone and being, being by myself with, you know, nothing constructive to do. So I, I pursued destructive behaviors instead. What's interesting is you talked earlier about rituals, and I would imagine, like when we're talking about that, one of the rituals was, oh, I'm going out of town, and gee, what can I do, and who can I call, and sort of setting you up for for the situation before it even got there. Um, Does that make sense, or is that like what you meant? It does. If it it was either like you said, prearranged with somebody that I knew, Mm -hmm. or it would be okay. I'm going to go to you know a, a bar during happy hour. I'm going to see what level of interest I can uh, stir up with somebody there. And 
things would evolve from from that. I find that people are less and less interested in you as you age, um, for whatever reason. And, you know, it, it, it may be kind of a fun, lots of people come up to me when I'm 30, but, you know, you, you are still going at it, I would think, in your 50s or even longer. You know, what I hear is it gets more desperate. It gets harder to get what you want. I, I don't know if your experience changed over time. And maybe that's a good question. I mean, did your experience change over time, what it took for you to get what you wanted? Yeah, it did. You know, um, Larry brought something up earlier about, you know, uh, length of time in between incidents. And I think that, you know, there would always be early on, this would crop up, I'd get caught, I'd plead and promise. And for three, four, five years, I would use willpower to make it go away. But it always came back. It might, like I said, it might be five years, eight years, 10 years, a situation always arose or, you know, a ritual or a feeling would drive me uh, to, you know, relapse, if you will. And as I got older, you're right, it changed. It might, it changed to going to, you know, strip clubs uh, with my golf buddies on a golf trip. And, you know, I'd be the guy who would go to the private room uh, rather than just, you know, just have a lap dance or, you know, look and have a drink. You know, so I would always take it a step further than, you know, a quote, normal, non-addict type of person. But it did, it did change. And it, in some of it, as I became older, became a memory-based thing where I would have sexual recall at, and masturbate based on past experiences. You know, so it manifested itself in a different way that, that even though I could say, well, I hadn't been with anybody else for 10 or 15 years or more, you know, my mind was still uh, active in the addiction. You know, folks, I find this conversation so fascinating and really in-depth. I think we're going to have a part two. And so you can look forward to the opportunity to listen to Jeff and Larry and what they're struggling with in part two. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.